Hi, this is Alan Chartok. I'm delighted to be in conversation today with preeminent Lincoln scholar Harold Holzer about his book, The President Versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media, From the Founding Fathers to Fake News. Harold Holzer, what a man. You have done so many things in your life. You are so famous. We are delighted to have you. So great to have you with us today. Alan, it's always great to talk to you and to hear you overstate my qualifications. It's wonderful. Well, anybody who goes to Harold Holzer, we did it, my wife and I, (laughs) and look up the honors and the accolades that you have had in your life, it's extraordinary. I called Gustina, our producer, and I said to him, don't put all that stuff in. We won't have any time for the interview. Just let's say he is the preeminent Lincoln scholar in the world, and he has had honorary degrees from all over the place, and everybody knows Harold Holzer because he is a guy who has done so much, including you're running the Roosevelt House at Hunter College, my school of graduation in New York, and it's amazing what you've gotten accomplished, and you're a parent and all the other things that go with normal life, so it's amazing. So This is not exactly normal, but I try. It's great to talk to you. Uh, last time we spoke, I interviewed you at the, I won't say I what remember. year, the anniversary of graduation. Yeah. <laughs> Harold Holzer, because you are the Lincoln scholar, let's start with Lincoln and the press. You wrote a book on it, but then yeah. you've also written this tremendous book, The Presidents versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media, From the Founding Fathers to Fake News. And as I say, you won the Lincoln Prize. So let's start with Lincoln. What did Lincoln think about the press? Well, if the press was owned and operated by Republicans, he loved the press. He hung out in their offices. He subscribed to, you know, dozens of Republican newspapers. He gave them exclusives. He had his own speeches typeset in newspaper offices uh, in the days, obviously, before you did it on a laptop and carried it everywhere. He uh, gave exclusives to Republican newspapers, so very chummy, and he appointed many of them to federal posts once he won the presidency in 1860. But he hated Democratic newspapers. He hated them, and they hated him. And they plagued him all of his political life, whether in his hometown of Springfield or the bigger field of Chicago, New York, and Washington, where he had no end of criticism and ultimately struck back at them in a way that no president, not even Donald Trump, has done. What manifestations was that striking back? So at the beginning of the Civil War, right after the Union lost the Battle of Bull Run, Lincoln turned to what he called the war power, which he sort of invented, under the theory that he had to abrogate the Constitution in order to save the Constitution in the future, he suspended the writ of habeas corpus, and he began, or his administration began, arresting editors, closing down newspapers, and chilling dissent. I mean, not only chilling, but ending dissent where he could. His argument was that these newspapers were suggesting or discouraging young men from re-enlisting in the Army after their initial 100-day service ended, or enlisting for the first time. And um, he felt that was, you know, bordering on treason. And the remarkable thing is that the press of the day, even, you know, the Republican press did not object to it, even though it created a precedent that might one day come back to haunt them. So, Harold, I want to get to something. In your life, you've had many, many roles. You've been with the press. You've been managing the press. I have a program called The Media Project, and usually there are three other people on it, and they almost always universally have great praise for the press, period, as an institution. I've had my doubts over the years, and I've watched some terrible things. I'm wondering what you think. Well, I mean, I have innate admiration for the press because, as you say, I've been, you know, 50 years ago, I was a journalist for a few years on a weekly newspaper in Manhattan, but I was also a press secretary, as you know also, because we first dealt with each other when I was working in the Mario Cuomo administration mm-hmm. and hanging out in Albany all the time. So, you know, I, I enjoy journalists. I, I have fun with them. We have a lot of things in common that we talk about. They're extremely knowledgeable. They're usually very witty. But I think something happened to White House coverage over the years. It started in the Nixon administration when journalists found out they really could take down a president. Now, you know, Nixon deserved to be taken down for breaking the law, but the success of Woodward and Bernstein and their celebrity status thereafter, I think, emboldened a new kind of gotcha journalism. At the same time, talk radio, not including your reach and your bandwidth, of course, became extremely partisan and ultimately 
ultimately Fox News, CNN, MSNBC followed suit. So what you have now in the broadcast world is the same kind of overt partisan coverage that you had in print during the Civil War and before, you know, beginning with George Washington. And I don't think that's healthy, particularly since each of these entities is not as honest about saying that they are part of a political kind of organization. I agree with that. I agree with that. I have to say that in my fairly young life of 79, 80 years, I have run into members of the press who I thought were nasty people. (laughs) I mean, nasty. And who, in the name of competition, tried to put down their colleagues and tried to bring down major figures because it was like the guy who walks into town with a gun saying, I'm faster than you are. (laughs) And so I think there are plenty of things about the press that I really don't like, and I frequently criticize for that. Well, you know, Jefferson said that they were the alarm bell for democracy. At the same time, he hated Federalist newspapers. So, you know, Jefferson with the press was in always great in theory as he was about human rights and all men are created equal. It's the practice that he had trouble with, right, with slavery. But I'll give you a great Jefferson story that shows, A, that politicians can be dumb about the press, and B, the press can be nasty. So he had an anti-federalist editor in his pocket. He worked in Philadelphia tearing down Washington's reputation. Then he moved to Richmond to be pro, you know, Republican Democratic, as they call the party then. And he was really loyal to Jefferson. At one point, he ran out of money and he went to the Jefferson administration. He said, I'd like you to make me postmaster of Richmond, Virginia. Now, this sounds like a lot of, you know, chutzpah in a way. But newspaper men were routinely rewarded for their labors back even then. But there's something about the ask that Jefferson didn't like. He thought it was too audacious. So he said no. Within weeks, this man, his name was Callender, had not only switched and become the editor of a pro-federalist newspaper dedicated to attacking Jefferson, but he wrote a pamphlet accusing Thomas Jefferson for the first time of consorting with his enslaved woman, Sally Hemings. And, you know, he created a scandal for all time. It is still the greatest stain on Jefferson's reputation, aside from holding slaves and becoming increasingly supportive of the perpetuation of slavery, that he slept with a teenaged woman he owned and had children with her. So, I mean, the lesson here is that the press can be really nasty, but politicians have got to play the game with the press, or they can suffer pretty steep consequences as well. So it's sort of a blackmail. Yeah, sort of a deal. That word that we used to hear all the time was that was so terrible, no deals. So before Jefferson came Washington, and Washington was no great fan of the press either, was he? You know, he started being, even when he was a general and just beginning as president, he was a supporter of reduced postage rates for newspapers. That's how they reached most of their people at that point. That's um, still going on, by the way, that kind of thing. It's still going on, right. Increase those <laughs> rates. But toward the end of his first term, he had been supported by a newspaper called the Gazette of the United States in Philadelphia. Well, his own Secretary of State, the aforementioned Thomas Jefferson, imported an anti-federalist editor who hated Washington, hated anything British, which Republicans believed Washington was, believed in states' rights, not federalism, and started a new newspaper called the National Gazette in Philadelphia dedicated to attacking Washington. And he, his entire second term was consumed with political attack plus real slander. You know, he had behaved improperly during the Revolutionary War, which no one said ever until the partisan journalism began. And then Benjamin Franklin's grandson started another anti-Washington newspaper in Philadelphia, made it extremely personal. And I think, you know, his doctor, Benjamin Rush, believed that Washington chose not to run for a third term, not just because he was so interested in starting a tradition that a president would only serve to and not be a dictator, but because he was just exhausted and furious over all the attacks. At one point, this man that we think of as a statue threw a newspaper on the floor and jumped up and down on it in full view of his cabinet. Of course, he didn't like the Congress too much either. He said he would never go up there again after he went one time. So he was a man who could have his opinions. What should he have done? I mean, you're the PR guy. Right. Oh, yeah. That would have been an interesting client, right? Yeah, you represented the Metropolitan Museum of Art for many years, and you had to get out in front of whatever problems they might have had at a particular time. What would you have told Washington to do? Well, I think I would have told him to meet more than one journalist in eight years. The only journalist he ever met that I can tell is the one 
sort of middle-of-the-road, nonpartisan guy he summoned to the executive mansion late in his second term and said, I've got an exclusive for you. You can be the person who prints my farewell address for the first time. The guy was sort of astonished and ran back and started having it set in type. I mean, here's the thing. Everything about Washington in the Washington era was being done for the first time. He probably should not have had an anti-federalist in his cabinet, but he had Thomas Jefferson. He probably should have said to Jefferson, no, you may not hire this anti-George Washington editor and pay him as a translator in the State Department so that he can have enough money to start a newspaper to attack me. He should have come off his pedestal and stopped that in its tracks. But he should have, you know, in the end, this was the beginning of the tradition of political party journalism. And I don't think there's anything any press officer, if they had had such a thing, could have done to prevent that from happening. So let's go to FDR for a moment. He is a real case study in journalistic malfeasance, isn't he? Journalistic genius may be the first thing that comes to mind. (laughs) I mean, here's a guy who befriended the press, went around the press, castigated the press, censored the press during World War II, all of the above at the same time, and also got the press to keep his secrets, which is an astonishing more than a trifecta. That's what I was referring to. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Well, he started, I mean, in Albany, he was someone who met the press several times a week, and he continued that tradition in Washington. He held 998 press conferences in 12 years, two a week, Tuesday afternoon and Friday morning, with rare exceptions, even, you know, on battleships, in Hyde Park, in Warm Springs. He continued the tradition for the traveling press corps. And somehow they decided, and certainly the photographers decided, let's not share with the American people that he uses a wheelchair. You know, they would move him into his office, take him out of the wheelchair, put him in his chair at his desk in the Oval Office, and that's where the press conferences would take place. Roosevelt seated, smoking, and the journalists standing around him. And there was a gentleman's agreement. I looked everywhere for the smoking gun for the first five years. And they did. Was there an order? Was there... Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there was later, by the way. But no, the the only reminiscences I found that explained it was, you know, he was such a nice guy, and we didn't want to get in his way. And he was trying to help the country. We didn't want to make it harder. And as a result, although people knew that Roosevelt had polio and that he had fought it, and they assumed, having seen him a few times, sort of doing a great imitation of walking with his braces, his crutches, and usually one of his big sons on his arm or holding his arm, nobody knew that he was really wheelchair-bound and completely paralyzed, that oh, very few people. Now, Roosevelt went farther than that. I mean, he got Liberty Magazine during the 32 election to do a piece on his health. And I think we all remember four years ago, there were questions about medical reports because then-candidate Donald Trump did not want to release his medical records. So he had his doctor drive up to Trump Tower and hand out one-page statement saying he was the healthiest patient he'd ever treated. And people thought, well, okay, that's the medical report. Some questions there. What FDR did is he got a friendly reporter to write an article, interview three doctors who fabricated his health, and I don't mean just glossed over his paralysis, didn't discuss his very high blood pressure, which he'd had for quite some time. And which killed him. And which ultimately killed him. And then the reporter wrote to Roosevelt, it's in his papers at Hyde Park, and said, well, we got away with that one, didn't we? Did he have lovers? Yeah, I think up until 1921, he was not faithful to Eleanor, and that was what, you know, made them quite distant for the rest of their 25 years of marriage. But I think he continued to have women friends, but I'm not sure how active he was after polio. Did the reporters know about all of this? I don't think the reporters knew about the early dalliances. I think... That was a pretty closely held secret, although obviously in the Kennedy era, there were plenty of journalists who knew, as they put it later, almost reluctantly, that he was back to his activities of his bachelor days. But, you know, up until, you know, someone first made a charge about George H.W. Bush during, I think, his reelection campaign against Clinton, of all people. Someone said, you know, and he said, that's absolutely not true. Later, we found out when John Meacham wrote a biography and in another biography of Laura Bush that he may indeed have had a long-term relationship with another woman that drove Barbara Bush to despair. 
So there was, you know, until Bill Clinton, there was really no reporting on a president's private life. How did that happen? I mean, I keep thinking about what that was all about. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit. And also, because this is an interview about your book, your wonderful book, The Presidents Versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media. How did it happen that Bill Clinton let himself in for this? Well, I think he was operating in the beginning under the belief that his private life was private and that all that the voters were entitled to know and hear and debates his political view and his public life, had it had ever been thus. I wondered why. I mean, was it more flagrant? Was he just in your face? Things had changed since Nixon. They had changed progressively. And Joe Klein, who's a terrific journalist, analyzed it once. I put his explanation in the book. And David Gergen, who is the complete opposite of Joe Klein. Let's put it this way. I love, let's put it this way. I love David Gergen. Yeah, and he's worked for both sides, and he's a great analyst as well, political analyst. Both of them said, you know, Clinton was sort of representing the 60s generation, and the reporters were not proud of their 60s behavior. And they realized that Clinton had the same 60s life, you know, whether he was smoking pot without inhaling or not wanting to be in the military. They identified with it, but they didn't want him to get away with it, even though they had. It was bizarre. It was sort of triple reverse Statue of Liberty play in psychoanalysis. But I think, according to Klein and Gergen, they sort of saw themselves in Clinton and they didn't like what they saw. Okay, so there was Gary Hart and the monkey business. Now, that wasn't the president. Did that make a difference? Yes. Well, I mean, I don't say much about Gary Hart in the book because he wasn't president. basically treated presidents. But yes, you could say that his behavior or his well, what Gary Hart did, which no candidate or president ever did, is if you don't believe that I am a good and faithful husband, then I, you know, I dare you to follow me and report otherwise. So they followed him. I mean, he said to follow me and they did. And there he was with I forget the woman's name. But yes. But the point really is that in some ways, that follow me if you don't believe me became sort of standardized for the presidency. Yes, but I think at that point, with the Gary Hart candidacy blowing up, that that no one ever said follow me, so the so the following became even more earnest and that prevalent. was the invitation. So let's go yeah. back to Roosevelt and the wonderful yeah. buildings that you're in. We all remember that Franklin, who wanted to divorce Eleanor, was told by Mama, "You do that, and you're out of the will." Right. Well, she was a pretty uh, savvy broker. She brokered the idea that it would be the destruction of Franklin's career if there was a divorce. And she was invested at that point in his future. He was, you know, a state legislator and had been a vice presidential candidate. And there was a great expectation that he would continue in politics, even though he was hobbled by polio. And he, he was determined to make a recovery. He was practicing crawling around his library upstairs in an effort to strengthen his arms. So I don't think it was a matter of the will. I think Eleanor had money of her own, and, you know, she would eventually produce a journalistic and book writing and radio career that made her pretty independent. But she was invested in the power and the potential of of her husband. So she stayed in her way, not as a wife exactly, but as a companion and an advisor and Roosevelt's eyes, ears, and legs for all 12 years of his president. He didn't always take her advice, but she was ready to give it. And, you know, really a powerful force on the left, pushing him slowly, slowly toward an embrace of civil rights that he was a little reluctant to embrace. We are talking to the great Harold Holzer, winner of the Lincoln Prize, who has now written this gigantium book. I don't know how you did it, Harold. You must have been up day and night. The Presidents versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media, From the Founding Fathers to Fake News. Well, we'll leave him, you know, fake news guy, for a little later. But let's go back to Jackson. Age of Jackson, Jackson and the newspapers. Tell us, you really seem to have done quite a job on that one. Well, Jackson is President Trump's hero in many ways, and you can see some of the origins of it, antipathy toward established institutions, you know, the deep state, you know, populism. But Jackson was also a brilliant manipulator of the press, not quite as overt as President Trump is. He simply created newspapers in Washington that would be pro-Democratic Party, pro-Jackson, and his administration created newspaper networks, sort of the forerunners of the AP and the UPI, where Jackson gospel could be spread across the West, where his, some of his political base was. 
At the same time, he got newspaper men to serve him in the White House. The first time that there had been an unofficial advisory group, it was called eventually the Kitchen Cabinet because they entered through the kitchen door so as not to be seen at the official gateway to the White House. They served in roles like Postmaster General and Comptroller of the United States. They wrote his speeches. They helped write newspaper articles. They, quote, drafted him for a second term, and he relied on them. And, of course, the opposition, the Whig Party press, gave him back, you know, all the attacks that that his press was leveling against Henry Clay and John Calhoun and the others who challenged him. But it was a very professionally run, brilliantly managed press operation. He had brilliant people doing it, and if they strayed from the party line, he simply got somebody else. So tough character and brilliant manipulator of the press. How would you compare him to Lincoln? You know, it's interesting. Both of them were born in the West. One, of course, had military experience and one didn't. Both of them managed the press. Both of them befriended and gave jobs and political advertising. It was always political advertising. That was part of the lure um, for these guys to stay loyal. But Lincoln hated Jackson for his entire young political career. Even before he was formally a Whig Party member, he was an anti-Jackson man. He was opposed to Jackson's you know, reluctance to build infrastructure, for example. Lincoln was pro-bank of the United States. Jackson was against the bank. Lincoln believed in, you know, helping people to rise in economic and social status. Jackson believed in sort of keeping the masses on his side, what today we call the uneducated white male voter. But when Lincoln became president and there was a challenge to secession and a challenge to his crackdown on freedom of the press, Whom did he quote? Jackson. When the governor of Maryland said, you can't have troops come through Maryland, it upsets people. Lincoln said, well, my troops aren't birds. They can't fly. They're not moles. They can't dig under the earth. So they have to come through Maryland. And to say no, there is no manhood in that. There is no Jackson in that. Suddenly there was a picture of Jackson on his wall, as there is in the (laughs) Oval Office today. And when Lincoln was closing newspapers and Some people were saying this is an abrogation of, you know, constitutionally guaranteed freedom. Lincoln said, well, look at Jackson. He closed newspapers down in New Orleans after the battle there, but he reopened them when he was ready to relax martial law. And that's what I'm going to do. It's only temporary. Now, you're the Lincoln scholar of all times, and I I want to ask you this. Lincoln is portrayed in many people's minds as almost godlike, for want of a better word, Jesus-like. Figure. Now, that's the way so many of us think of him. But is that true? Because what you're telling us is that he had a tough side to him, especially when it came to the press. Yeah, I think he always had a tough side. I mean, look, he committed millions of people to war. Uh, he would not allow the country to divide. And once the war was underway, he used his powers to end you know, the institution that had made us hypocrites to the world. The country founded in equality in which four million people were still enslaved. Lincoln did more than anyone else to end that. He actually did it. And of course, he died a martyr's death on Good Friday, which helps in terms of canonizing you and making you another Jesus, I suppose. But of course, there was a tough political side. He was a professional politician who was interested in power and exercising it, you know, for the public good, but he was interested in winning. He was interested in eviscerating his opponents, and he was interested in giving Republicans jobs once he got into power. But it's the management of the power that makes him special and makes him beloved, and it's saving the American experiment. It's extending it to people of color. So for that, I think he ranks as the greatest American president. But along the way, did he crack down on dissent to win the struggles that he was engaged in? Absolutely. The name of the book is The Presidents Versus the Press. It's by Harold Holzer, our friend. It's the endless battle between the White House and the media, from the founding fathers to fake news. Let's go to JFK. Now, JFK is an interesting thing. There's a popular saying in Massachusetts that the two pictures that often are in Irish households are a picture of Jesus and a picture of JFK to this very day. So, he, like Lincoln, had a popular you know, profile, but a lot of that had to do with the press, right? Yeah, well, I think it also had to do with new technologies. And by the way, our neighbors in Queens, the Coils, definitely had a picture of Jesus and a picture <laughs> of John Kennedy. I saw it as early as 1960, and I still remember it. I can visualize it now that you've called it to mind. 
I think the most successful presidents, and I should have mentioned this earlier, and Kennedy is in the mix here, are those who mastered new technologies to sort of get around the partisan press and the gotcha press. Lincoln did that by sending out his great letters and speeches on the telegraph. FDR did it with his fireside chats. Even though he was friendly with press, he hated the publishers. He didn't want to give them access to all the news. So he did only 28 fireside chats, by the way. And yet Americans thought he was on the air all the time. And he was kind of a guest in their living rooms. Amazing sway exerted by those radio addresses. Kennedy was the perfect person at the time when television was in an explosive stage. Eisenhower was sour and old on television. Suddenly this handsome guy with a great tenor voice and accent appears. And it's not just the Kennedy-Nixon debates, but it was his televised news conferences, which lots of journalists objected to. They thought he was manipulating them. They was doing it for entertainment value. The only reason they really stayed in with it is that they realized that they were getting television time themselves and becoming really famous and getting good lecture gigs. So it just became an American obsession, spawned, you know, satires and record albums, if we remember what those are. So that's how Kennedy did it, I think. Plus, he had been a reporter briefly after World War II. He had reported on some of the trials of German war criminals and on Britain, post-war Britain. And he had pals in the press, and they stayed friends with him during his presidency. He golfed with one of the leading reporters in the country. He became very friendly with Ben Bradley. They socialized together, and they protected him against stories not only about his extramarital affairs, but also about his health, which was precarious for a young man. It was sort of shocking. And the medications that he relied on to keep going and to sleep. And they knew all of that, Harold Holzer? Yes. Uh, Many of them knew all of that, and I imagine that in the confines of the press room, which used to be really close to the Oval Office and the press secretary before Nixon decided to cover up Franklin Roosevelt's swimming pool and make that the press room, yeah, they knew all that. But again, all Kennedy had to do is go to television. But was he unreasonable about criticism like the others? Absolutely. I was going to call my book The Presidents and the Press. It actually flows better than The Presidents versus the Press. But Kennedy was so annoyed by the coverage of the Bay of Pigs invasion. First, he he tried to suppress stories before the invasion. And then after the invasion failed, he blamed the press for not reporting about what a bad idea it was. So he was totally unreasonable about it. And he went to the Waldorf in New York City to give a speech to the American Publishers Association, and he lectured them. He said, you know, I wanted to call this speech the president's versus the press. And that's why I took that as the title. Hmm. Um, He said, because you have to know there is a line which you cannot cross. You cannot give aid and comfort to the enemy. And there he was raising the same lines that Lincoln did in closing down newspapers as Woodrow Wilson did in shutting down the flow of information during World War One, and as FDR did in World War Two, when he said, you know, he embraced the slogan, loose lips sink ships, and that applied to journalists who reported things that he didn't want reported. And I was going to say something before when you were talking about FDR, and that is a good deal of what we think we know about politicians in the press or public officials in the press is the context of when it is happening. Isn't that so? I mean, in other words, we got World War II and a depression. That's quite different than if not much is going on. Yeah, and that's why in my book I focused on the presidents where, you know, I didn't do all 44 presidents, actually, because not much was going on. Some of them had interesting relationships. Even Herbert Hoover had an interesting relationship. McKinley had an interesting relationship, but I didn't go there. The only mention I made of poor Harry Truman was that when a newspaper man wrote a scathing review of his daughter's <laughs> musical performance in Washington, he sent him a note. He actually sent him a note in his own handwriting yeah. saying that if I ever catch you again, I'm, you're going to need raw meat for your eye and a supporter for below. Um, <laughs> and while the newspaper man didn't report it, somebody else got it and printed it. But I, I found out something interesting about that that I never knew before. I mean, everybody knows that great story about oh, people who follow the sure. presidency. Sure. But Truman's press secretary, on whom he depended a lot, um, I think his name was Charlie Ross, had dropped dead at his desk that day. And Truman was in a, just a terribly anxious mood. 
the extra burden was he decided not to tell his daughter, Margaret, about Ross's death. And that just kept, you know, he was in turmoil. He had lost his closest advisor on public relations. He was flailing about. And when he got home, he saw the review. And, you know, the press secretary wasn't there to say, don't send that letter. You know, do what Lincoln did, right? Get it off your chest and then put it in the drawer and don't mail it, which Lincoln did on more than one occasion. But he just sent it right out there. I don't know whether it actually helped him or hurt him. I think with a lot of people, it helped him. They said, I agree. Harry, give him hell. You know? I agree. I agree. And defending his kid. Let's go to Tricky. What about Tricky Nixon? How did he get along with the press? Well, that was bad from the beginning. He believed that he should become a press hero from the time he started prosecuting, or some say persecuting, Alger Hiss when he was a congressman and a senator in the 1950s. He hated the press for exposing this, you know, what today would seem like a totally minor slush fund where he used political contributions to send out Christmas cards from his office. That was such a big deal in 1952 that Nixon had to buy television time to go to the El Capitan Theater in Hollywood to give his famous speech about his wife's cloth coat and their dog checkers. And it actually saved his career, although if you look at the tape today, it's hard to explain why. He lost the presidency because of his ineptitude on television or maybe just his five o'clock shadow. Mm. And then when he lost a comeback bid to be governor of California in 1962, he famously said, well, you don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. This is my last press conference, gentlemen. And then just blamed the press for everything. But, you know, six years later, probably the most extraordinary political comeback ever. And then dedicated for the next five, six years to absolute control, controlling the message, keeping the press at a distance, sending out his vice president, Spiro Agnew, to attack the nattering nabobs of negativism with his alliterative kind of Baroque attacks on the media for being slanted. And, you know, ultimately it got darker and darker, trying to stop the press from printing the Pentagon Papers and losing in the Supreme Court creating an enemies list to punish reporters, to investigate them, and ultimately, of course, the last word when Woodward and Bernstein refused to drop the matter of the Watergate break-in and the cover-up, and ultimately he paid the price. But if you ask Nixon, it was all about the unfairness of the liberal press who were after him from day one. Were they? Yeah, I think think in a way they were. But he had plenty of conservative press um, supporters. I mean, it didn't help that he ran against the publisher of the New York, of the Los Angeles Times the first time he ran for the Senate in a primary. But he was vicious on the stump. I mean, he just tarred his opponents as communists, ruined them. Jerry Voorhees, the first congressman he ran against after World War II. Helen Gahagan Douglas, this you know, progressive woman who is, you know, Hollywood royalty, just eviscerated them. And the bare-knuckled aspect of Nixon turned off a lot of journalists. Also, you know, they were used to the drinking and the good fellowship of the Kennedy years and even the back and forth with Johnson. I mean, he was a terror, but he engaged them endlessly. They didn't like the secretiveness about Nixon and they didn't like his personality. There are lots of reports that, you know, when Kennedy used to walk back on his campaign plane or the presidential plane, the press would just, you know, love the opportunity to chat with them off the record. When Nixon came back, one reporter said that the journalists would face the windows and hope that he didn't stop. Is it true that he said, you know, I don't want anybody from the Washington Post after, yes. after is it so? He barred the Washington Post from covering his daughter's White House wedding to push back against their criticism. I mean, it doesn't get more petulant than that. And, you know, the Washington Post covered the wedding anyway. They watched it on television and they bought UPI pictures. So (laughs) it was a hollow gesture. And um, he couldn't even enjoy his daughter's wedding without making it about a press vendetta. Now, one of his daughters married, of course, a New York lawyer uh, who we like very much. Did you get to interview some of those people, too, about him in the press? You know, I I reached out to a lot of people who lived through that era, and I think either they don't want to talk to me or they've been through the mill to such a degree that there was a reluctance to speak. My friend Bill Moyers, for example, who I've known for 30 years, just doesn't talk about his experience with Lyndon Johnson. He hasn't spoken to Robert Caro. He hasn't spoken to anyone. And I didn't penetrate that bubble. And uh, I mean, I asked. I thought it was professional to ask. 
But I did speak to a few people, which I'm not accustomed to doing. I've never written about living people before, so this was a first. I spoke to Jim Lehrer, and I think it turned out to be his last interview, someone I knew and revered. And I got an interview with Bill Clinton, which was very helpful. I saw that in the book, yeah. Yeah, especially since uh, the Lehrer and Clinton stories are kind of interwoven. It was Jim Lehrer to whom Bill Clinton first told the original untruth about the Monica Lewinsky episode. And I was interested in whether Clinton regretted the cascading of, you know, PR disasters that followed and whether Jim Lehrer held it against him. And it was remarkable that Lehrer ended his life just in awe of Clinton's communications ability and his talent without any, you know, rancor or anger about being lied to. And Clinton wound up, you know, I think he believes, as most presidents do when they're signing off, believed that the press had mostly been, you know, committed to doing the best professional job they could and seeking the truth, and that it was only their pursuit of stories that there was never any there there about, like Travelgate and Whitewater and, you know, I think most sensitively of all, the suicide of his aide, Vincent Foster. The coverage on those were the things that upset him and still upset him. Once again, I want to point out that the name of the book is The Presidents Versus the Press. It's by our friend Harold Holzer, and he is, of course, the winner for an earlier book of the Lincoln Prize. Harold Holzer, let's start with, you mentioned him, Uh, I worked for a congressman, and he had a nickname for everybody, and his nickname for LBJ was Initials. (laughs) Say Initials called me today. So he was something. You listen to the stories of Doris Kearns Goodwin and so many others and their interactions with him. How did he do with the press? Well, he, um, he didn't do well, and the reason was he thought because the press were all elites and they were all in the thrall of John Kennedy, and they just could not bear the idea that this non-Harvard-educated Texan had ended up in the White House. And there were journalists who agreed with that assessment. LBJ put it typically in his colorful manner that, I say the same things Kennedy said. I fight for the same legislation that Kennedy fought for. When he said it, it was like Chanel Number 5. When I say it, it's like horse manure. And he didn't didn't use the word manure. Don't forget, though, also... um, LBJ was kind of a media mogul. He and Lady Bird owned the television and radio stations in Austin. Mm-hmm. They knew the press. They had fought for broadcast licenses. And he had manipulated and dealt with the press, punished the press as Senate Majority Leader all those years in the 50s. And at the beginning, he he had more press conferences than Kennedy did. But he, the thing is, he didn't want to stage them in that beautiful auditorium in the State Department with a blue background. Alan, you and I know a lot of politicians who like those we do. royal blue backgrounds. That started with JFK. So he would have them in the executive office chamber on the White House lawn. It never was quite the same. And he also practiced this kind of one-on-one physical intimidation with journalists that he was famous for in the way he dealt with politicians, sort of looming over them, spitting on them when he talked, breathing on them. And it was... Ah. You know, one reporter said it was like spending an afternoon with a bloodhound. Speaking of which, you know, this is a great example of what I always worry about with the press. And that is, so he picks up his beagle by the ears. Yep. (laughs) And that goes around the world. The picture of Johnson holding up the beagle by the ears was more important than virtually any of the incredible things that were going on in the world that time, including Medicare, Medicaid, everything else that he was doing. That shows how selective the press could be. Well, there were, you know, two episodes of a kind of vulgarity or something that people didn't like. These two were photographic in nature. First, picking up the beagles, by the way, to make them bark, he later said, which is probably worse than just picking them up by the ears. Even his closest chum said that he had been ridiculous, but he got really annoyed. He got rid of the, one of the photographers who first circulated the scene. But then later, when he had emergency gallbladder surgery, and he was smart enough to do a press conference from Walter Reed Naval Hospital to show that he was recovered and to show that he was still in command. In fact, he did one from his bed, and then he did one on the hospital lawn. But he could not resist picking up his polo shirt and showing everybody his scar. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, 
and you know he was not built like a muscle guy so it was not the most flattering picture and before long it had inspired endless replays plus caricatures i remember the great cartoonist david levine did a picture of him lifting up his shirt and showing a scar that resembled a map of vietnam so it was a harbinger of press coverage to come. And how did he feel about that, about the Vietnam thing? I mean, you know, after all, it got a very bad name in the United States. And, well, he was at first furious. I mean, he, he would call CBS when Marvin Kalb said something critical. He would scream at journalists who, who described it as a quagmire or questioned the military offensive. He tried radio, he tried television, but he lost the living room war. He lost it even with his domestic accomplishments, with his restructuring of society that was, you know, except for Social Security, greater than the New Deal in a way because it was all permanent. He never got sufficient credit for that because he probably lacked the communications ability of his predecessor and B, because he had the war going on. So you had the credibility gap creeping into the vocabulary the fact that the press no longer believed Lyndon Johnson. And another thing he should be given credit for probably led finally to his ruin, and that is, unlike the Middle Eastern wars with which we've been involved lately, where there are embedded reporters but no images of actual destruction and battles, the only images we see of these wars are of precision bombing. It looks like a video game. There's no humanity involved. Johnson did not crack down on coverage of the war. It was like World War II coverage with war correspondence, but now with television covering the war. And as a result, I mean, of course, it's as a result of the policy as well. Walter Cronkite broadcast his you know, famous report about the war, and Lyndon Johnson watched the documentary and turned to his aides and famously said, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. And that was the beginning of the unraveling of the Johnson presidency. Did he understand why the war was so unpopular that so many people had to go that didn't want to go? Yeah, I think he did. And I think he was, if you listen to White House tapes that he made with people he trusted, certainly not the press, but people like Senator Richard Russell of Georgia, he believed in the quintessential rock and hard place situation. He couldn't get out and face America's first military defeat, and he couldn't stay in without exposing the the innate fallacy of the policy and the destruction it was bringing in terms of life here and there. So he didn't know what to do. He did not. Did the press do a good job of covering him? The reason I say that is I don't think they liked him. Yeah, I don't think they did. I mean, they didn't like his bossiness. They didn't like his they didn't like the kind of charm he used or he tried to. They certainly didn't like having to confront him naked whenever he wanted to. I mean, there are stories about reporters who, I mean, there's one reporter who had to get a quote right, and LBJ said, well, come up here, come up to the second floor. He found him in his bedroom, lying naked face down on a table, getting his nightly massage, which I did happily lived, you know, 70 years without knowing about. Um, He was getting his nightly massage, and Johnson gave him the quote. The reporter was mortified. He said, okay, thank you, Mr. President. I'm leaving. And Johnson said, wait, hold on a minute. I want to give you something. And Johnson stood up, fully naked. He opened a closet that was in the room. He bent completely over with his rear end practically in the reporter's face. And what did he get? A photograph of himself, and he gave it to the reporter. I want you to have this. And the reporter fled into the night may have never been heard from again. But the thing that always got me, that didn't get enough attention at the time, I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, is that Lyndon Johnson at one point stands up and says, "We," in a speech which was written by Doris Kearns Goodwin's husband, said, we shall overcome. And it turns around apparently to people and says, well, we just lost the South. That took an awful lot of courage, didn't it, for that guy? Yeah, and I think it, I... I even remember that moment. And it, it, the result of that speech, I think, was the Voting Rights Act and the new Civil Rights Act. And they, using the national grief over Kennedy and over, you know, the television broadcasts of civil rights demonstrations and police overreaction and brutality. Yeah, I think he captured the moment brilliantly. And by the way, Doris's husband also found a book by a veteran White House and Washington correspondent and columnist, Walter Lippmann, and he went to the uh, other 
brain trusters in the Johnson, Johnson administration and said, you know, we ought, to, we ought to describe our policy by using this book that Lippmann wrote. It's called The Good Society. And someone had the brilliant idea of calling it The Great Society. Let's go one better than Lippmann. Let's call it The Great Society. And that's how that went from journalist to journalist. So Richard Goodwin gets credit for both of those adaptations of great phrases. I'm so old that I remember when uh, Lippmann was the preeminent political theorist <laughs> Yeah, and Johnson, States. by the way, played him like a, uh, what is the expression, a, a drum. When he was president, he visited Lippmann. Lippmann was old by then and, you know, flattered him and gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom and invited him to parties and said, this is Walter Lippmann, he's my friend. And Lippmann, you know, at that stage of his life, wanted to be considered the the absolute apogee of columnists, and he was. And as a result, Lippmann later said he he supported the war for too long. He was he was just taken in by Johnson's effusiveness, and Johnson then just sort of dropped him, and uh, Lippmann gave up the column and retired for his last few years. Good Want to hear a great uh, Johnson story about the press? Sure. He often entertained them down in Texas and had press conferences standing on haystacks. You know, the journalists really couldn't stand it, although there was lots of great barbecue and beer and that part they liked. One day Johnson said, early, early in his term, uh, he said to the pack of about three or four, five journalists, I'd love to show you my house, you know, the ranch house, the famous LBJ ranch. And he got to the porch, and Lady Bird was standing firmly in the doorway, and she said, Lyndon, don't you remember? My cousins are here from somewhere, and dinner is almost ready. And Johnson said, well, this won't take long, and she would not get out of the doorway. And he yeah. just sort of moved her aside. And they went in the house, passing these two people who were sitting in the living room, looking like they, you know, they were waiting for a bus that had been delayed for a long time. And he marched them through every corner of this unremarkable house and then got to a door, and he couldn't open it. And he pounded on it, and it, nobody would answer it. And he finally turned and said to the voice, Lady Bird, lock me out. And he forced the door open. And there they saw an unmade bed. John's aim is their bed. Lady Bird had clearly not made the bed and didn't want to. And he said, and this is my bathroom. And they went in. There were hair curlers on the sink and wet towels on the floor. So I think this is what the kids say is TMI, too much information. That's what Johnson was all about. And the Ladies press and didn't like it. Now, Harold Holzer, of course, the man who called the press the enemy of the people is Donald Trump. He is an unabashed war with the press. What can you tell me? I look at Trump in two ways. First, that he is actually, as unpleasant as it may be for us to confront and admit it, uh, the latest practitioner of a longstanding system by which presidents reward journalists who like them and fight back against presidents, uh, against journalists who don't. Uh, Trump gives exclusives and interviews to Fox News and Breitbart, and he attacks CNN and MSNBC at press conferences and in his you know, tweets. The other thing that Trump does that I think is not understood enough, I mean, maybe people understand that they're getting a barrage of messaging from him, is that in the tradition of the best communicators, Roosevelt on radio, Kennedy um, on television, Obama at the beginning of the Internet era, Trump is a master of messaging on his, his, on his Twitter account. And not only does he have millions and millions of followers reading anything he wants to post, true or false. But also his tweets, brilliantly put out early in the morning, lead the news cycle for the rest of the day. The press sort of follows. Even as they object and comment, they use his stories as the basis of their daily coverage throughout the day. So I think he's mastered this. And maybe it makes him more fearsome or maybe more effective, depending on your point of view. So true or false, Harold Holzer, is Donald Trump, because of his reaction to the press, a threat to democracy? I don't think it's as much to do with the press as it is to do with his attacks on the other pillars of, of the state. I know that's a phrase that his supporters think is a pejorative term. I mean, I think his pounding against the post office and the intelligence agencies and law enforcement is much more critical, voting rights and uh, and that kind of thing. But... Uh, sure, his his demeaning of the press has a corrosive drip drip effect on our confidence in the media to tell us the truth, and it's become so hyper partisan though that I think 
the people who don't like Trump believe what they want to hear, CNN and MSNBC and the Times and the Washington Post, and those who love Donald Trump, no matter, you know, whatever the status of the pandemic and the economy, believe what they hear on Fox and Breitbart and the New York Post and conservative newspapers. We're back as we were in the Jackson era in terms of receiving news. Is he more of a threat? Well, I think because he's mastered a technology where he creates an alternative reality, he's done what Adams and Wilson and FDR didn't do, and even Obama didn't do with what he called White House content, and that's created an alternative news source. Trump has succeeded in doing that. And, um, you know, we'll just have to see whether when he leaves office, whether it's in, you know, one year or five years, whether we go back to the same or whether something totally different emerges. And, you know, he is certainly creating uncertainty. But I think it's the damage. There is still a strong press pushback against Donald Trump. And those of us who think he deserves it can find it. I think that everybody who wants to should read The President's Versus the Press by Harold Holzer because there's a lot more to learn about Barack Obama, his style, and why it was so effective with the American people and so many others. Dear listeners, we are out of time. I am so sorry because this conversation could go on for another three hours. In any case, he's the winner of the Lincoln Prize. The name of the book is The Presidents versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media. I cannot recommend it to you highly enough. If you really want to know what goes on and how, this is the book to get, and it'll keep you happy throughout the winter. It's a big book. Thank you so much for being with us today. And Harold Holzer, thank you for everything you've done. Thanks, Alan. It's always great, really great to talk to you. been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store.